This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. There's a little hotel called the Shady Rest at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. It is run by Kate. Come and be her guest at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. And that's Uncle Joe. He's a moving kind of slow at the Junction. Petticoat Junction. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. The theme of this episode is Uncle Joe, moving kind of slow, no malarkey, come on man. I don't know if that's going to be the exact title, but I'm thinking something along those lines. Come on, man. What are we talking about? Today we are talking to two authors who really have been uh, looking at Joe Biden's record and his effect on the country as a member of the Senate since 1973. Both of them have some ideas about what it's going to be like possibly for the next four years. First off, Bronco Marchetic. He's a journalist, probably know him from Jacobin magazine, and he's the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. And I'll just read the blurb. Bronco Marchetic's new book exposes the forgotten history of Joe Biden, one of the United States' longest-serving politicians and one of its least scrutinized. Over nearly 50 years in politics, the man called Middle Class Joe served as a key architect of the Democratic Party's rightward turn, ushering in the end of the liberal New Deal order and assisting the political takeover of the radical right. It's really, really says something about this country that figures like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama seem to be so far to the left, at least judging by who's in national politics. And, uh, you know, Biden was responsible for a lot of that. And after that, we'll talk to Jeremy Kuzmarov, J.P. Walker, Assistant Professor of American History at the University of Tulsa. He is the author of Modernizing Repression, Police Training and Nation Building in the American Century. And he's also the author of The Myth of the Addicted Army, Vietnam and the Modern War on Drugs. And if you're interested in more of Jeremy's work, you could check out CovertActionMagazine.com. We'll get that to that in the, the second half of the show. But first, let's talk to Bronco Marchetic, author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Busing was a, a anti-segregation measure that was put in place um, basically after the, the Brown v. Board decision. Uh, and the idea was that to uh, get rid of inequities in, in racial inequities in schooling, you would take poor black kids, you put them in a bus, you'd send them to uh, white schools that tend to be 
of a high quality. And in some cases, you also do the opposite. You take white kids and you bust them to, to predominantly black schools. So this provoked a big racist backlash uh, because a lot of white families didn't want their kids going to, you know, what were underfunded schools for one, but you know, even even more so, they did not want their kids going to to school with with black kids. Um, and so, all over the country, there was a huge, furious backlash to this. Um, Biden tried to ignore it. He would sort of say, from time to time, you know, oh, well, you, you know, the busing—it's this silly issue that that liberals and um, in suburban house parties like to, to talk to each other about. But, you know, it's, it's very silly. But, but he would actually vote for busing because at the time, Democrats were pretty solidly for it. Um, and so it was actually, so I said 1973, so it was 1972. And so midway through his, uh, his, his first term as a senator, uh, there was a huge uproar about busing in Delaware because of a court decision um, that, that mandated it. And people were very angry. They they came to see him. They were jeering at him in a, in a town hall and everything. And this was an issue that he could not dodge. And it looked like somebody was going to run against him. And so, you know, you're looking at a guy who has his entire life, he's wanted to be a senator and, and, and ultimately the president. He's now midway through his first term. And he has a serious political issue flare up that, that could cost him his place and could have someone eventually use it to, to beat him in an election. And so what Biden does in 75 is he pivots hard uh, to the anti-busing side. And so he, he not only starts saying really, really virulently anti-busing things, um, which now, you know, you, you read them and, and they're pretty horrifying. I mean, they are right on the line of pretty, some pretty, pretty ugly stuff. And I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. He was really quickly taken under the wing of um, some of these formerly segregationist senators that he started serving with because he ended up on the on the Justice Department. And, you know, Delaware is a – it's technically a, a northern state, but it, um, it it's kind of it kind of straddles the line between north and south. And, you know, one of those people was Strom Thurmond, um, which, uh, of course, back in 2019 when Biden was just one of a number of candidates rather than kind of the, the, the anti-Trump figure that had to be protected at all costs, there was a big, big controversy over – his um, not just his association with former segregationists, but uh, also his his continued kind of citing of that work with former segregationists as kind of positive as a, as a as a positive example of the way that he could get things done in Washington. Um, and probably Strom Thurmond was was arguably the the biggest of those. I mean, he Thurmond and him worked on a lot of those crime bills, not not just the 1994 one. That one was actually less important than the stuff he did in the 80s, which established mandatory minimum sentences, which put all these really punitive punishments on uh, the position and, and dealing of, of various drugs. Uh, the cocaine sentencing disparity, the crack powder cocaine sentencing disparity that, that's become influence. All that was uh, he worked on with Thurmond. That was a, an extension in many ways of the anti-civil rights work that, that Thurman and others like him had done earlier, um, except now sort of updated for a more 
I guess, polite, less outwardly racist society. You couldn't, you couldn't quite say the kind of things you were saying in the 60s and the 50s or the 40s, but you could update it and make it about crime rather than that race. And when Thurman died, actually, in 2003, Biden was one of the few, not just Democratic senators, but one of the few senators, one of the few Congress people living, current or former, who actually went to his funeral and eulogized him. It was a huge controversy. Even Republicans would not go to his funeral because he had become that toxic. But Biden, you know, part of this instinct he has to kind of defy liberal orthodoxies and, and I think also part of this whole commitment to the tradition of the Senate and the tradition of kind of like this this friendliness with people who are supposedly your political opposites, you know, he he, he insisted that he would go. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't really gotten as much attention, um, but, but there you go. You mentioned how... You know, there's a period, in, a point in the 80s where crime basically became the new code word. Crime became a problem when really it was just about keeping black people in their place. If, if you could kind of like, you know, explain to people, because I think people still, they hear like crime bills or, you know, or war on crime and they think we're cleaning up the streets. But like, what does it really mean? And what's some examples of Biden policies that went in that direction? It's important to note that that crime and drugs, this is the other one, uh, these issues were heavily racialized. Um, it was either explicit or implicit that the the person who was going to get the crime committed against them was a white, probably affluent person, and the person who was doing the crime was going to be a scary black person, you know, a scary black man. Uh, the Willie Horton ad, the way that that was used by... Um, by Bush, by, by Bush Senior against Michael Dukakis is a perfect example of the way that operated. A completely uh, race-neutral ad in terms of what it says. It just tells you that Dukakis, um, because of his policy, Willie Horton, this, this criminal, was allowed out on fellow, and then he ended up um, you know, raping this woman. But, of course, the image was that was used, you know, it, they specifically used a, a African-American prisoner in this case, because they knew that that would, even if they were not going to say the thing explicitly, it would get people who still harbored those unconscious or at least uh, under the radar prejudices that would get them, you know, scared and fired up. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. And so, uh, you know, crime, as you say, it was never explicitly pitched as a return to segregation, but that's kind of how it worked. I mean, you know, these policies overwhelmingly ended up impacting um, black and, and also Latino people. You know, over time, all these things, if you, if you have more police, more prisons, more judges, harsher sentences, a society that's already riven with racist uh, views and resentment, um, and a society that's still coming out of basically what was, you know, an apartheid state, um, those things are going to be disproportionately aimed at, uh, at, at non-white criminals rather than, than white ones. And so then you get the situation that we're in where now sort of Biden's in the position of having to solve 
you know, the problem that he kind of helped to create. And do you have a sense from looking at him or, you know, people he's picking for cabinet posts or any, any sense at all, really, of like him grappling with these problems, you know, or having changed definitively or is his whole platform i'm not trump <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna undo trump you know like what where does he stand now it's a uh it's a complicated question to answer so i would say look i mean i think on criminal justice i do believe if you look at his various public statements um over the years i do believe that that was purely political calculation on his part i think he he knew that that was a thing that people, particularly in, in Delaware, were worried about, and he saw that as um, as a way to kind of shore up his credentials with a more conservative electorate. Uh, you know, I mean, there was another way he could have gone. He could have gone in a more kind of economically populist route, that kind of bread and butter uh, issue, a policy-focused approach that, that tries to kind of get people together across various racial and, and other lines. Um, but, you know, he decided that he would go hard on that issue of drugs and crime. Um, and it worked out for him. By the 2000s, he was starting to say things like the stuff he had done in the past was it actually led to some bad outcomes. It was time to change it. Um, I mean, he still, he still defends the crime bill, but uh, I think it's more out of a sense of wanting to defend the thing that, I mean, the, the crime bill was really his chief, for a long time, viewed as his chief political accomplishment. So, you know, I mean, he's not hes not going to throw that under the bus, you know, even if he now realizes that <laughs> it was wrong. So he'll still defend it. But I do think that he, he has seen that now there's no real political capital to be gained from going hard on this issue. I mean, you know, when even Trump has signed a, a criminal justice reform law, um, clearly the, the politics of this has changed. Um, so I think that has changed. I mean, the, the the thing is, though, to me, it's less interesting about whether Biden personally was in his heart. And it's about what what does he what is he going to do? What does he have the inclination to do? What does he have the personal capacity to do? And I think, you know, you look at some of the stuff he's done. It's gotten a lot of um, uh, praise uh, in his opening three weeks. And. I mean, it's, it's good. I mean, he's reversed a lot of racist Trump policies. He reversed that 1776 commission uh, idea. Uh, stupid. Um, you know, uh, he has ended uh, or he's directed the DOJ to stop uh, contracting with private prisons. All very good. But, I mean, th this is really the, the, the bare minimum. And, uh, you know, very conspicuously, Biden did not take the Department of Homeland Security, uh, he did not direct them to stop using private prisons. So, you know, it's, it's still very incremental steps. We'll see what happens in future. I mean, I, I am optimistic that on this issue, I think it can find cross-party support, as it did under Trump. And so there actually could be some really important stuff that happens. One thing that I thought was really valuable about the book is I think we're all, you know, if we're if we're vaguely aware of, like, Bill Clinton and, you know, and what the Democratic Party became from that point forward, the corporate Dems, as they're, they're often called, you know, I just always had in my head, like, it started with Clinton, but that came out of Biden. He spent the 80s touring around with the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Conference, which Clinton later chaired, um, which was a collection of Southern conservative Democrats who wanted the party to 
to move right. And he went around the country basically uh, going on about this. And one of the things I, I try and show in the book is that, again, this is a, a racialized, but very quietly racialized idea. So what Biden would say is that, well, what's happening is that the Democrats and in, in, in the U.S. political system is is governing in favor of the special interests um, and it's leaving the the middle class guy, the middle class behind. And if you look at the sum total of his statements around this uh, through the 80s and beyond um, and what he's actually saying about them, it's clear that he's meaning something very specific by these terms. Um, and he'll sometimes say it quite explicitly. Um, and what he, what he is trying to say is these special interests, it's not lobbyists, it's not the rich, it's not businesses. The special interests are all the different minority groups that essentially became really core parts of the democratic, uh, constituency. So, you know, African Americans, Latinos, poor people, LGBTQ people, to some extent, labor to some extent um and the middle class guy really what that means is kind of a the the kind of white conservative suburban uh person that that the southern strategy that nixon and and reagan and other presidents republican presidents used that that it was built on um and so basically what he was saying is we had to stop thinking about these particular groups these disaffected groups that democrats have, have long been trying to take care of and, and focus on the Reagan constituency, the Reagan uh, uh, voter. Yeah, because, you know, Republicans are just looking for a Democrat they can vote for. That's yeah, sure. the dumbest strategy. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, I think that really speaks to the Democratic Party being more concerned with courting corporate interests than it is even with losing, like... How is that? I don't know how that's workable, you know, in in the short term or in the long term. Well, you know, I I will say this. I mean, the Democratic Party has, uh, since adopting this agenda, has has really um, not had a good time politically. I mean, you know, this is the Democrats in in a time where they were most kind of economically populist, let's say, um, from the New Deal era up until basically the Reagan era. I mean, the Democrats had a pretty had like a lock on both houses of Congress. Um, I mean, they were then when they have a presence all over state capital, state legislatures and the like. Um, now, I mean, for the last 40 years and, and particularly since Obama, I mean, that's really, um, the, the track record of, of that strategy has not been great. I mean, the Democrats are, 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 have a pretty pitiful presence at the state level, um, especially in this most recent election, they got absolutely decimated on the state level. Um, they have very inconsistent control of Congress. Um, uh, and even the presidency eludes them pretty regularly. I mean, until Biden, until this election, which, you know, we have to remember was came in the context of not just one of the most unpopular incumbents in history, American history, but also in the context of two massive world historical crises, the pandemic and the associated recession that came with that. But that was really the first time that basically a a kind of centrist corporate Democrat has actually won against a a very hard right Republican. Uh, You know, Carter lost to Reagan. Mondale lost to Reagan. 
Dukakis lost to Bush. You had Gore losing to, to Bush Jr., Kerry losing to Bush Jr. All, uh, all of these elections were premised on the idea of we'll pick a candidate that is basically not that different from the guy in charge and, you know, in terms of policy and, and sort of we'll just kind of offer a slightly different tweak of what exists. And they all lost, you know. The only, the only guys who didn't were Obama. Also, Hillary Clinton lost. That's the other one I didn't mention. But the only guys who didn't lost were Obama. Um, who did run as a kind of more populist candidate, even if he betrayed that promise, and Clinton, who kind of did the same thing in 1992 uh, to some extent, um, before, again, betraying those promises and kind of pivoting to deficit cutting immediately. It sounds almost like Americans want a populist president or, you know, or progressive president so bad that they'll even vote for clinton or obama if they just throw them a bone you know like they don't even actually have to have stated policies or you know that are that work just as long as they come across as something other than a corporate politician obama's policy platform was not super progressive but i think he did present himself as an alternative you know he he was the guy who voted against the iraq war whereas bush had started it um and mccain obviously had supported the iraq war he was a guy who you know had a a public option as his health care plan he was a guy who talked about reversing the the war on terror i mean all of that he completely reneged on of course but that that is what he said and and obviously that came with all the other you know the the charisma and the historical um, significance of Obama's win, of course, which also got people on board. But yeah, I mean, he he did try and at least offer a, a change of direction rather than just sort of saying, well, basically everything will be the same, but we'll just make it a little nicer, which has kind of been the patch of every other uh, candidate. Uh, maybe uh, you can help me solve a mystery. In my notes here, I wrote Watergate and underlined it twice, <laughs> and I have no idea what I was, <laughs> what I was thinking. I, I think I can... Uh, determine what that was. So I think this is actually a good window into the kind of Biden's personality and his kind of view of, of politics, right? And it's that clubby Senate traditionalist, institutionalist kind of thing that we, we talked about earlier. When Watergate happened, um, and we have to remember Nixon had won Delaware. Um, so he was very popular in Delaware. Uh, when Watergate happened, Biden really kind of felt around for a response to it because on the one hand, obviously Watergate, very um, shocking kind of uh, example of, of presidential um, malfeasance. Uh, on the other hand, Nixon was popular in his state. So what does he do? Biden kind of, yeah, waffled around for a bit. And then eventually he came out with a speech that was sort of not quite defending Nixon, but basically badgering the press, attacking the press for um, for, for reporting on Watergate, essentially, for investigating it and, and saying that the press was kind of tearing the country apart. And, and he would – that was his position was that, well, Watergate was unfortunate, but, you know, he was not going to be one of these Democrats who was um, hoping for Republican defeat and who was kind of rooting for Republicans to be eviscerated as a party because his position was – you actually need a strong Republican Party. You need a right-wing party in, uh, you know, to balance things out. And we still see that a little bit. I mean, I, we're seeing that in his um, his continued, I would say, completely pointless outreach to Republicans in this COVID stimulus bill. He, he sort of said 
he has said things in advance of, of his inauguration, even on his inauguration, basically saying, you know, what, what was his speech about? It was about unity. It was about the need to, to find unity and to bring the country together. Not every, all the people in the country, but to bring the kind of warring political factions in Washington together. Um, and so you still see a little bit of that. I, I have been heartened by the fact that he, he appears to be ready to pass the stimulus and the party line vote through reconciliation, which suggests to me that maybe he has learned something, even at this old age. Um, again, remains to be seen. But uh, I was surprised that, that you know, he has sort of acquiesced to that, uh, which is quite a, a departure from that kind of Watergate-era Biden. And, and what is your feel for uh, Biden's foreign policy? Do you have a sense of what he might be doing or how he might be thinking, you know, for the next four years? Yeah, he, he's been all over the place. But I would say he's – you could put him firmly in the kind of liberal – establishment foreign policy position where you know the, the u.s is a is, is the indispensable nation it has a duty to intervene and u.s power is still it's, it's a, u.s power and hegemony is still the most important kind of thing especially for securing um you know uh, uh, u.s self-interest of course but also global stability i think that's basically where biden lands early on he was he ran as a kind of reluctant anti-war liberal and he won on that and he and he was pretty firmly against the war for a while he, was, he, he took some pretty good foreign policy stances but then when reagan won biden said well we have to we have to move to what reagan's doing and so he became a much bigger supporter of foreign intervention probably most famously with his push for u.s involvement in the balkans in the 90s um, and secondly, during the Iraq war, where he really played a leading role, contrary to, to what he, he claims now, he played a leading role in, in selling that war. Um, supposedly, well, you know, no, report, reportedly Biden was against the surge in Afghanistan under Obama. And he, again, uh, we only have reports for this, you know, secondhand reports, but he, he was against the intervention in Libya. Uh, and he was against the bin Laden raid, for instance. And so that would put him kind of make him a little more dovish than Obama. But, you know, I mean, at the same time, I mean, his foreign policy is going to be driven by who he puts in charge and who is he put in charge. I mean, he's put people not only who are very ardent uh, hawks, war hawks, uh, liberal war hawks in his administration to, to run his foreign policy. But he's also picked people who were just in working in firms uh, that profited from from war, from there being more conflict and more U.S. intervention around the world. So, you know, regardless of where Biden stands um, as an individual, I mean, like the, the people that he has put in charge have every interest and desire to to do more U.S. intervention overseas. And we're, we're already seeing that. I mean, he's he's going to he's talking about reversing Trump's drawdown in Afghanistan. He's uh, backing uh, Guaido in Venezuela in Iran, he is taking the exact same monstrous and, and unjustifiable position, which is that he's going to keep sanctions on Iran until they re-comply with the Iran deal that the U.S. itself had violated first. Um, you know, I could go on and on. But, uh, you know, that, that it's basically just we're getting a taste of, you know, it's sort of Obama 2.0 or, 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 you know, a Clinton administration, what they would have done essentially. Because it's the, sa it's the same Clinton and Obama people 
who have just come back to, to run this stuff. That was Bronco Marchetic, the author of Yesterday's Man. And now we're going to widen the scope a little bit to the rest of the world and uh, talk about Biden's foreign policy blunders in the past with Jeremy Kuzmarov. He was actually supporting some bills uh, basically to strengthen the CIA after the church committee hearing because the CIA was humiliated in the church committee hearing exposed all kinds of abuses of the CIA. And there was a movement to either abolish the CIA or seriously uh, reform it and, and, and change its mission back more to intelligence gathering agency, which is what had been founded by Truman. And Biden was part of a network in Congress, you know, who were pushing for legislation basically to re-empower the CIA, to make it uh, immune from freedom of information disclosures, and to go after CIA whistleblowers like Philip Agee, who founded Covert Action Magazine, and who had, um, you know, uh, tried to expose the CIA. And they had a column uh, in the early magazine called Naming Names, although they drew off uh, declassified records. Nothing was, was classified that they exposed, but they were exposing the names of CIA agents. So Biden was part of the debate, and we're sponsoring legislation to uh, basically criminalize uh, any leaking of information about the CIA. So that he was involved with that, and he was throwing the FISA regulations uh, for electronic surveillance that basically uh, expanded leeway for electronic surveillance and established special courts where um, uh, jurisdiction could be granted for uh, surveillance. Uh, and then, you know, he was supporting uh, the, uh, a lot of wars in the 80s, like Grenada War, and even pushing for more funding for El Salvador, although he was against a lot of the Contra affair. And I guess he was trying to make a reputation as a, you know, a, a against Reagan by speaking out and, and heading some of the hearings against the Iran-Contra affair. So he was against that. Uh, but he was supporting other things like military aid to El Salvador, and he was, he was supporting the Israeli war in Lebanon in the early 80s, and Grenada, and then Panama. Then by the 90s, he was a strong supporter of humanitarian intervention, kind of took the lead in uh, pushing for war in uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo on alleged humanitarian grounds. And then he played a key role in the Senate in pushing for the war in Iraq, and was pushing hardline policy against Russia, uh, actually supported the aid to the Mujahideen uh, fighters against the Soviet Union. So he's always a Cold Warrior, and with a new Cold War, you know, he's pushing for NATO expansion in the 90s, and was very uh, hostile to Vladimir Putin. You know, it, it just seems really odd that, like, a young senator, one of the first things he would throw his weight behind is, like, sticking up for the CIA, <laughs> you know? I mean, that really shows something. Yeah, I think, uh, and, you know, again, he was hostile to the anti-war movement, uh, you know, from the beginning. So, you know, I think he was, you know, um, I mean, he was he was pretty conservative, pro-military uh, from the get-go. And, you know, he was a man of the early 60s rather than the later 60s. So he was never allied with a counterculture or new left movement. He was pretty hostile to those uh, movements. And um, what was his uh, 
role in what we were doing in Colombia during the Reagan years? Uh, with Central America, he was against the Contra operation, but uh, he was supporting military aid to El Salvador, and he was supporting the war on drugs and became a big supporter of the Plan Colombia, which was an expansion of the drug war in Colombia and a major agreement between the U.S. and Colombia. There was a report issued by Elliot Engel this past year before he left. He was the head of, uh, I think, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee before he lost his seat. And his report said the drug war in Colombia was a failure, although it referred to it as a counterinsurgency success because an ulterior motive was to provide weapons you know, to the Colombian army that was really fighting the leftist guerrilla. It wasn't doing that. It was selectively fighting some drug traffickers, but not all of them. And it was mainly fighting the leftist guerrillas who were branded as narco guerrillas falsely. And there are huge human rights violations associated with that dirty war against the, the leftists, the FARC. And that's what a lot of the money in Plan Columbia went to. And yeah, Biden defended, you know, was a key in, in helping that, that to pass in the Senate and stood up to critics like Paul Wellstone, a progressive senator from Minnesota, tried to oppose it. But Biden, um, you know, uh, stood up against him and defended Clinton's policy in the Senate. I find it very interesting that, like, it was finally referred to as a counterinsurgency as opposed to trying to stop drug traffic. Maybe you could talk about a little bit about counterinsurgency and what was going on in Colombia and what Biden really was backing. Because, you know, we think that he was trying to stop cocaine coming into the country or something, but it's really a lot more devious than that. Yeah, I think it's a long war against the left in Colombia. You know, the FARC, uh, Fuerzas Armada, Revolucionario de Colombia, was inspired by the Cuban Revolution. And, you know, Colombia, I mean, Latin America in general had some of the highest levels of social inequality in the world. And, you know, there was a, an oligarchy that ruled, violent oligarchy ruled Colombia for many years. So the leftist, you know, uh, force, you know, emerged in the 60s, inspired by the Cuban Revolution, and had a lot of supporters, you know, among the oppressed uh, groups and, and neglected regions of the country that were, uh, you know, poor economically. Uh, and that war went on for many years, and the U.S. was allied with the Colombian army, you know, poured in a lot of military aid from the Kennedy era. When you know Kennedy was promoting counterinsurgency uh, and sending you know special forces into countries like Colombia to train their army, and you know Reagan's uh, ambassador to Colombia, Louis Tams, had coined the term narco guerrilla, linking you know narco traffickers with the guerrillas, which was false. Yeah, all the independent uh, studies found that the major traffickers were allied with the uh, Colombian army and government and hated the guerrillas. You know, usually they had their own armies that fought the guerrillas uh, and allied with the Colombian army uh, or assisted in operation because they hated the guerrillas because they didn't want land reform. You know, a major platform of the guerrillas was land reform, and they had you know owned huge amounts of land. So uh, they did not want land reform. Uh, so, you know, under Plan Colombia, indirectly, and at time perhaps even directly, uh, trafficking networks were receiving money from the U.S. government. And some of the uh, elements of the Colombian army were very corrupt in the drug trade. And some of these paramilitary uh, gangs basically worked in conjunction with the military. And some of them were hired by 
uh, ranchers uh, to fight leftists or to go after also trade union activists. Uh, in some cases, Plan Colombia had the effect of just altering the, the regions that were uh, most uh, producing the most, but it didn't have a major effect in limiting the supply of drugs. This is silly, but I I think I'm like a lot of people where I keep getting hung up on the uh, Uncle Joe, you know, cool Uncle Joe kind of persona that he has nowadays. I can be sassy. I can be unpredictable. And you bet your buttons that Joe Biden can be off message. <laughs> the only thing I can't do is wink. You don't think I could give a train wreck interview to Katie Kirk? Just name the time and the place. And Joe Biden will bring the train. I am a wild card. In the middle of a tough campaign... You know, his, his foreign policy, which was supposed to be about the war on drugs when really it was... Um, counterinsurgency trying to put down the left in Colombia. And and in and at home his his domestic policy which is supposed to be trying to keep drugs out of our streets and it's really a very racist, you know, militarized policing system that he was upholding or or creating, helping create. Is there any indication that there's a real like fascist ideology behind what he does or is he simply just going with the flow, you know, working within the system and the system itself is corrupt and flawed? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if fascist is the right word, but yeah, there are fascist elements. I mean, if you're building a police state, uh, you know, that fits the definition of fascism. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, he was a gung-ho zealot as far as the drug war and, you know, wasn't concerned about what you're describing, you know, the, the, the advent of police state in the United States and the militarization uh, that occurs in, in countries like Colombia and the huge uh, human rights abuses uh, that that result. So, you know, uh, it, it is very regressive. Paul, I, I don't know what the right word is. It's a very bad policy. I mean, in, inhumane. I guess the word is inhumane, whether you want to use the term fascism or well, it's militarism and it's just an inhumane policy that leads to, you know, terrible human, uh, I guess to the army term, collateral damage, uh, you know. And I think this is just a persona. Yeah, you know, we have a, a system now where politicians are kind of marketed like they're marketed like toothpaste. And, you know, they market a certain personality and you think, oh, here he's. He's Uncle Joe, as you say, he's this empathetic guy, and he reaches out to people at human tragedies. But that's just kind of for marketing purposes. Behind the scenes, yeah, he's involved with the legislation that's really harming people, uh, whether in the United States uh, or abroad, and, and particularly minority groups, fitting a, a large pattern in, in U.S. history. Would you kind of say, like, his next big... Uh... If we're going through the greatest hits, Kosovo or, you know, the collapse of Yugoslavia would be kind of the next major act in his uh, in his career in the Senate. Yeah, he devotes a lot in his memoir uh, to that. Uh, and he said he's most proud about that. And he thinks it was this great humanitarian crusade uh, to fight against genocide and to stop a genocide. And Milosevic was the bad guy. And, you know, all sides, once war broke out there, there were atrocities on all sides not just the Serbs. And, you know, the worst ethnic cleansing was carried out by the Croats in Operation Storm, which was planned with U.S. Uh, mercenaries 
and retired military generals. And so, you know, and actually Milosevic had accepted some diplomatic settlement or the Vance Owen plan that Milosevic accepted that would have just established different ethnic enclaves within Bosnia-Herzegovina, which was one of the breakaway provinces where fighting broke out. But Biden and Clinton rejected it. And if that had been signed, that was in like 93, the war could have been averted. So Biden actually played a role in the blocking of the peace settlement and pushed for U.S. bombing, which further inflamed the situation and pushed for you know the alliance with uh, the Croats and, and Muslims who were committing a lot of the atrocities. And then he pushed for the bomb in Kosovo, uh, which killed a lot of civilians as well, and ultimately empowered the Kosovo Liberation Army, whose leader, Hashim Fassi, is now uh, under indictment for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And Biden called the George Washington of Kosovo. Uh, he was charged with murder, and uh, he's also tied with the Albanian Mafia, and uh, was involved, uh, it appears, in a uh, human organ smuggling scandal where they were taking the organs out of Serbs who were tortured in the war and selling the organs on the black market. And Kosovo became a headquarters of prostitution and heroin trafficking. It really was another bad war. Yeah, and you know, I can see people listening to this thinking, we're like, if you dare say that like Milosevic wasn't like the evil creature that he's been made out to be in the West that you're somehow like pro genocide. But like, I'll just remind people, you know, the uh, international court of justice concluded that there was no direct evidence linking him to known cases of genocide by Bosnian Serbs, you know, like it happened, it happened on all sides. Like I think you just said, you know, so it's just like things, things are not as cut and dried as, we're led to believe if we watch the news or listen to leaders like Joe Biden and um, Joe Biden's really one of the people that made that made things black and white that made gave us these simplistic answers that turned out to just be more problematic as time went on. Yeah, very well said. I agree. <laughs> that was my rant for the day. <laughs> what was Joe Biden's role in uh, the Obama White House, especially when it came to foreign policy? Well, I think he played an important role because of his uh, background uh, and experience. And he was a key uh, Obama administration point man, I know, in Iraq and Ukraine. And his role, I think, is very questionable, uh, to say the least, in both of those countries. Uh, for instance, Iraq, you know, he was a key figure in the second Iraq war, which uh, doesn't get condemned as much as the first Iraq war, but it also led to a lot of destruction you know, there was a good article in New York Times uh, magazine a couple of years ago now about the lack of transparency in the bombing and how there were a lot of civilians uh, who were uh, bombed and killed. And the sacking of Mosul by Gen uh, General Lloyd Austin, who's now head of the uh, Pentagon, who's uh, in charge, uh, I believe, the ultimate uh, person in charge of that operation. And, you know, it was to fight an enemy the U.S. had effectively created, ISIS, and there was no congressional authorization because Obama claimed that the U.S. was fighting al-Qaeda and they had gained the authorization to fight them in 2001. So there was no, never a congressional vote uh, or even a public debate about it. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of atrocities and, uh, and questionable things that went on there. So 
And, you know, Biden was trying to, I think, advance the U.S. agenda of getting Iraq to open up its economy and privatize its economy. And when Nouri al-Maliki was, you know, Iraq leader, Shiite leader who had come in, uh, in you know, 2000 after the U.S. Uh, invasion occupation, I think he kind of wore out his welcome. Uh, and I think he was very sectarian and, and, you know, he alienated the Sunni population, which some of whom supported uh, ISIS, uh, and also may have been more nationalistic and, and allied with Iran. So Biden worked with John Kerry to undermine al-Maliki at a certain point and bring in the guy Haider al-Abadi, who was more uh, in favor of the U.S. privatization agenda. So uh, he was doing you know, that kind of work behind the scene. Although uh, for a period he was, he was close with al-Maliki, who also was a rather questionable leader, uh, you know, um, especially in considering his sectarian policies. And then, yeah, we can look at Ukraine if you want. I mean, in Ukraine, uh, that's really, I think, uh, very, very shady uh, and should be investigated more because, you know, Biden was supporting the Maidan color revolution, which was a, basically a, an uprising uh, against uh, you know, um, it was an uprising against, um, you know, the pro-Russian government of Viktor Yanukovych, and it was packaged in the West as a, you know, pro-democratic movement, but actually there were neo-fascist elements uh, in the Maidan Square uprising, and, you know, Biden praised them and was a big supporter of that uh, so-called revolution, and really was part of a long-standing U.S. agenda of trying to uh, pry Ukraine away from the Russian orbit. And then, you know, a civil war broke out uh, after this uh, revolution. And, you know, the, the pro-Russian leader was toppled. And Biden was very close with uh, Petro Poroshenko, who took power in Ukraine after the revolution. But he was very corrupt. And under his direction, Ukraine was, uh, you know, the most corrupt nation in Europe. And they fought a dirty war in eastern Ukraine against, you know, two provinces voted to separate because they were closer with the Russians. And, um, yeah, it was a dirty war. Biden was pushing for, uh, you know, further military arming of Ukraine, even pushing for Javelin anti-tank missiles, which only Trump approved. And then there's the business of Biden's son. You know, Hunter Biden was put at the head of this company, Burisma, which had been under investigation, and then Biden used blackmail to have the prosecutor, Victor Shokin, uh, fired uh, to save the company from investigation and prosecution. And a new prosecutor settled with, with Burisma, uh, who had to pay like a $7 million fine, but they owed like $40 million for tax evasion. So, uh, and they, you know, the, process, the investigations ended, and his son got paid all this money and it, it's possible that that was also a front for funneling weapons because uh, you know, Kofor Black was also appointed to the board of Burisma, and Kofor Black was number three man in the CIA at one point. And apparently, according to an investigation by a journalist, John Helmer, the real head of Burisma was a, a guy named Ihor Kolomoisky, who was a, a Ukrainian warlord, uh, who was funding these private armies that were fighting the dirty war in eastern Ukraine and may have used Burisma uh, as a source of funding. So it's possible Brian was pro providing a cover for a major covert operation, although there would have to be more investigation to corroborate that.
you know, it's funny. Um, not funny. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's almost like he's come full circle. You know, what you're describing in Ukraine is so reminiscent of what America was doing in, in, uh, Colombia and in Central America, you know, in the 1980s, which, which, uh, as you, as you told us, uh, Biden was, was, you know, a major part of. Yeah, it's a strong continuity. Uh, and we see a lot of continuity in U.S. foreign policy, even with the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, where they would use private corporations to, you know, funnel money uh, into, you know, rebel groups uh, that in that case were targeting Cuba. So, yeah, I think we see Biden, you know, is a strong proponent of covert operations and, He's a cold warrior, and you know he sustained his hostility to Russia, and uh, he's willing to you know adopt very unethical methods or support very unethical programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I think kind of the point if you know that I want people when they hear this episode to kind of I know we are all we're all very excited that Trump is no longer president. We all want to have a sane foreign policy and domestic policy and we just want things to be nicer and we want the temperature to kind of come down the collective temperature in this country but we we can't ignore the fact that Joe Biden has kind of been at the center of American power since the early 1970s and he's never failed to play the game you know in the way that the powerful want it to be played. And that's a really ugly game when you start getting into the details, no matter how nice, you know, Joe seems with his mask and his, you know, homespun expressions and stuff. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. And why is that so? Because not a single thing he said is accurate. I don't know if Biden's going to push for more sanctions on Russia, uh, but, you know, he's continuing all this hostility towards the Russian government and anti-Russian rhetoric. And it's going to you know, lead to, uh, I mean, it increases the threat of nuclear war because both countries have nu- nuclear weapons. And uh, the threat of proxy war, or, or at least the war in Ukraine, will probably not be resolved and continue uh, the kind of proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. So I think that's dangerous. You had a new Cold War and the war with, you know, the, the escalation of tensions and conflict with China. And, you know, the, the Pentagon has said that we're, we're recalibrating our forces to prepare for war with you know, other great powers. And you know, the greatest threat comes from Russia and China, not from Middle East terrorism. And this is just a way to justify the huge military budget, because I think, you know, Biden did say he wants to end the forever wars, but, um, you know, and that, that should be an urgent imperative. And cutting down the military budget, you know, especially at a time when we have major public health crisis and pandemic, and a huge number of Americans are out of jobs. So priority of the government should be getting people back to work, addressing the, the pandemic, public health crisis. But if we're spending so much money on military, and you know now the focus is Russia and China, we have to prepare for future war with them. It's going to justify continuously huge expenditures in military, including nuclear weapons. And that will divert money from where it's needed to help with our economic recovery. So I'm, I think that's worrisome. I think progressive forces should target the, the hostility to China and push for cooperation with Russia and China uh, as part of a broader movement to bring down the military d- budget. 
and invest our tax dollars in the American public and in social programs for the public. This has been Failed State Update. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and rate us and review us on iTunes. You'll probably be the first, or maybe like the third. Uh, but it would really help if anybody other than my like close friends and family knew about this show. Also, uh, be sure to check me out on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. Uh, links to all my social and everything is in the show notes. And be sure to check out my other podcast, The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh, a eight-part investigative look at a UFO cult, if you haven't already. And if you're really daring, uh, I got a new book coming out, New Age Grifter, the true story of Gabriel Urantia and his cosmic family will be out June 1st on Feral House, and you can link to that through the show notes, through my webpage. You can find it on bookshop.org or even, if you insist, amazon.com. Thanks. Bye. That the last thing I'd see be the window bars Of a southern American town If you'd have told me that a year ago in New Orleans I'd laughed at Cat House Town Ain't no musket ball a cannon shot laid my company down. Mosquito on the leg to Davy and Jay, and the fever's on my breath Well, the boys went mango hunting and they ran through the line. They're in a car hosting